Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in for yet another great show. I received a couple of emails asking me if we're ever going to add a YouTube channel. So we already have a YouTube channel. Right now, it's only audio. In the future, I will be uploading video episodes. We're going to make this podcast video as well. So all the interviews, you're going to be able to see me and uh, the guests interact on YouTube. It should be fun just kind of building the infrastructure for that right now. It should take some some time, but I'm hoping to roll that out towards probably the end of the year. So look out for that. I'll obviously keep you up to date and anything that happens. But as always, if you want to stay tuned on any updates, Twitter, Instagram, follow me there and uh, I'll keep you in the loop. All right. This week, we have Emily Schrader. Emily is the founder of Socialite Creative. She's also a columnist for the Jerusalem Post. And she is just force of nature that is not going to stop until she gets the truth out. And I applaud her and I applaud people like her that despite death threats, despite insults and everything else, she's still sticking true to what she knows is true. And she's out there on social media giving you the facts. You know, she has these amazing short videos where she debunks a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that is widely circulated on social media. She does an amazing job, which is very much needed when your numbers, you know, if you're talking Israel, 12 to 14 million Jews worldwide, about eight or so million Jews in Israel. Most of them have jobs, work a nine to five. They don't have time to go out and explain everything. And when you're talking about, in theory, the other side, it's over a billion people. So those are just astronomical numbers that it's really hard to compete. But luckily, people like Emily, they take the time, they debunk all the misinformation out there, or at least the most popular ones. And she puts out actual factual videos with actual information. So she's amazing. We covered as much as we could in about an hour or so. You know, we talked about obviously all the misinformation on social media, a brief history of the area, what happened with Sheikh Jarrah, Middle Eastern North African Jews after 1948. As again, 10 hours and we would maybe cover half of what we would need to talk about. So we had a little over an hour. We try to get as much as we could into that hour. I think we made it pretty concise, but we did say that we might do it again in the future because there is so much information and so much stuff that we need to talk about. So if you guys like this episode, I'm definitely going to do another one with Emily in the future. Keep an open mind. Some of this stuff you may already know, some you may not, but keep an open mind. Perhaps there are things that you heard of before that you thought were true, and this is kind of go going to go against that worldview. Again, all I'm saying is keep an open mind. We're giving you only the facts here. Nothing is made up. It's all facts. So I hope you enjoy the episode and... Maybe learn something along the way. Without further ado, let me introduce this week's guest, Emily Schrader. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. 
Good. How you doing? Good. Good. Thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Of course. You Always have, have the hardest job in the world. <laughs> it seems like. Uh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> you have. Well, you know what? Uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But you do seem to have an uh, a massive uphill battle, an almost a, a mountain that is almost impossible to climb. But you know, I'm glad that you are doing it. I'm glad that there are other people that are doing it because someone needs to do it. But we will get into all that a little bit later. So first, I want to talk about you. Kind of give us maybe your background. Uh, where were you born? How did you get into the the current role that you're occupying? And maybe how would you even des- describe that role, really? We're only like two minutes in and you're already calling me an occupier. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, that's usually like I usually wait like 20 minutes before I do that. It's important. You have to lay the groundwork, you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I'm I'm originally from Los Angeles, okay. um, and all my family, um, and I was always very like politically active from even in high school, um, and so I was very active like on uh, campus. I went to USC uh, for my undergrad. I was very active on campus with political issues. But not so much Israel stuff, even though my family was, you know, generically supportive of Israel. Um, So uh, I really got involved with, you know, Israel issues and the Israel political issue when they had the apartheid week. So they call it um, on campus. It was the Students for Justice in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And they're very extreme. Even now, they've, they've gotten worse. They were very extreme even then, though. And I remember that I was, like, walking across campus with my friend. And she came, I, you know, we were walking by this, like, apartheid setup. And it has all these, like, really exaggerated and extreme claims against Israel. And I supported Israel politically because that was, like, you know, fit in with my political ideology. But I didn't really know, like, the facts. So I was like, why are these people obsessed with Israel? Like, do they have nothing better to do? And on campus, you have, of course, you have like the Arab Student Association. And like, I understand if it's like a Palestinian group, why maybe, you know, it's an issue for them. This is like the Socialist Club. And like, you know, that I think even at the time, although they ended up being very pro-Israel by the end, but like the Armenian club, like, what do you have to do with the Israeli-Palestinian club? Why are you here? Like, what are you doing? And they were obsessed. They would stand out there all day and pass out their flyers with like complete nonsense about Israel. And I was like pissed. I was like annoyed that they're like wasting my time approaching me. <laughs> and I, sa- I said this to my friend and she's like, maybe you should like join the students for Israel. And I was like, Oh, I don't have time for that. Well, I did. <laughs> and I guess, I guess the rest time. Of yeah, I, I found time. They annoyed me enough that I found time. Yeah. And I really got, I mean, I was already going to like, you know, I went to Hillel for like Shabbat dinner with friends and whatever. So I was like sort of involved, but not politically. And then from that, you know, Students for Justice in Palestine stuff, then I started getting really involved because I was like, who are these assholes? And like, why are they spreading all this nonsense? So then I started looking at what the actual facts were and I saw how ridiculous all this stuff was. And once I saw how fierce the opposition was, then I was like, okay, I have to, I have to be more active. I have to do something about it. 
And that's really how I got involved with the Israel stuff. And then I think at the time I interned with like a pro-Israel organization and then I worked part-time. So it really took off, um, took off from there, like on campus. Um, and then because of my, what I did, I worked on like a few political campaigns on the digital side. That's sort of how it was like a natural transition to start doing a lot of activism um, for and about Israel on social media. So it started just sort of as myself. Um, and then I worked with a number of different organizations over the years for about 10 years now, um, 11 years, um, doing, you know, different forms of Israel education, Israel advocacy, uh, political campaigning, depending on what the issue is over the years. So, yeah. You're like uh, like Larry David, like he opened a spite store because the guy with the coffee shop annoyed him. <laughs> you're like you're like a spite career, like you guys annoyed me. This is what I'm going to do now forever. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, it works. Yeah. I guess that's like the ultimate uh, the ultimate failure on their part, because if they had just not been so, you know, psychotic, then I would never have been an Israel activist. But because they were here, I am in Israel. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. We, we, we thank you. Um, well, the thing is, I remember maybe four years ago, it was uh, Israeli Independence Day, and I was walking around just randomly in uh, Washington Square Park back in New York City. And this wasn't political in any way, shape, or form. It was just an Independence Day, and there were maybe... I don't know, 100 people celebrating. They had flag, flags in hand and there was some, you know, music and they were just having a good time. And there were maybe 20 people kind of sitting down in, in protest, right? Like I, they had like Free Palestine stuff. And, and I was like, it is impossible. This is the only country where it's impossible to separate anything. It's just, it's, it's political in its nature. Like people cannot just go and celebrate their Independence Day. A little celebration, like 100 people, in the middle, of, you know, in like, uh, I don't know, it was like uh, off to the right hand side. It wasn't like even in the main area of Washington Square Park. Even then, they had to make it political, which is just, yeah, it just kind of goes to, sh to show that it's impossible to break away from that. Yeah. I think the thing that's been like that I've seen over the years is that like when I was at USC, they were very obnoxious and they would come and they would protest all kinds of events like you mentioned. Um, and that was like problematic for me because a lot of the claims that they make are incorrect. Not that you can't criticize Israel, of course, but like mm -hmm. the way that they do it is just wrong. Like they're yeah. saying things that are just objectively untrue. But what sort of shifted over the years is that it's become like, okay for for these, you know, some of these activists and some of these groups to just like target random Jewish kids. Like instead of protesting the USC students for Israel, now they're protesting Hillel. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they don't see that like there is a line, you know, you can criticize can, Israel. But can you explain what Hillel is maybe for, for the, for people who, who don't know, for listeners who don't know? Yeah, sure. So Hillel is like one of the largest Jewish life uh, organizations on campuses. They have like I guess hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, Hillel houses on campus and they host like Shabbat dinners and different, there's like a rabbi there and like a director who puts on events and it's not political, it's not like a political thing. It's like a Jewish cultural center the same way as there would be a Muslim cultural center or a Christian cultural right. center. It's not like, it's not something for Israel. It's for Jewish life or American Jews are also Canadian. I guess they're also in Canada. 
Canadian Jews. It has nothing to do with Israel. Um, and yet we see, especially recently, sort of a conflation of that with Israel from the other side, like attacking um, Hillel. And also Chabad. Chabad is another like major uh, Jewish organization, but more religious that they have across all different campuses. And we saw like even with this last wave of violence this month in May, that several Chabad houses not on campuses or actually one of them was on campus, I think. Um, we're being like vandalized with swastikas or, you know, they're spray painting free Palestine, like spray painting free Palestine on a Jewish institution is anti-Semitic. I, I don't know why that's so difficult for people to understand. It's, it's not a not a political statement to go to a Jewish institution and say free Palestine um, to vandalize it with free Palestine. But apparently some people don't understand this. So. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think it's become so... Um... You know, here in politics, it's very binary. Take any issue, there's no middle ground. It's like abortion, we know where that stands, right? Uh, climate change, you know where that stands. Immigration, you know where it's... Why does the Israel-Palestine fall so far? Like, I just feel like it's almost the other way around as, as uh, the way it should be. It's the other way around. And I'm always, like, confused why it's it's... Israel is is the one that's vilified. I think it's maybe and maybe I mean you can probably you know better than I can do, but it seems like there is a um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. The vilification of it is just very 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 weird for me by the, by the left essentially, not by the right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that behind a lot of it and. I hate saying this because it almost sounds like a cop out. Oh, it's anti-Semitism. Um, but there is an element. There is an element that's just old school anti-Semitism. It's that people have a problem with Jews. They always have. Unfortunately, it looks like they always will. Um, and we have to constantly be vigilant about educating people. That's part of the reason why like Holocaust education and this type of stuff is important. It's not just for cautioning future generations about other genocides it's also because like it's too easy it's too and i i don't know why it really doesn't make sense why uh people have always had a problem with jews because they're different or because they don't assimilate enough or because they whatever in, in different times in history it's been it's been different things because they're successful some of it has been envy in different places in the world and is um you know continues to be today but there's definitely an element, I think, of just pure anti-Semitism when it comes to the irrational obsession with Israel. And the problem is that people who don't understand that, they don't listen when we say that it's anti-Semitism. They think, oh, yeah, you're just trying to excuse, uh, you know, criticism of Israel. No, we're not. Like the fact that the international press, for example, is obsessed with Israel to the point where there is literally a genocide occurring in China. Mm -hmm. And that gets like, oh, a few articles here and there. But oh, my gosh, there's rockets and, and airstrikes in Israel between Israel and Hamas. And this like dominates the international press for three weeks. Never mind that, you know, there's teenagers getting abducted and raped and killed in Afghanistan in mass. Never mind that there's terrorist attacks in other countries. Never, never mind anything else that's happening in the world. Israel becomes like the number one thing. And, and this is a form 
of anti-Semitism, the, the obsession. And I think that there's never been an answer or they've never been required to answer why this is the case with international media. I know it gets ratings, so that's part of the motivation from their perspective. But at the end of the day, the disproportionality, like they always want to talk about how Israel is disproportional with Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The press is disproportional. They're disproportional in how they how they cover the conflict. And obviously there's a bias against Israel in a lot of the international press. But even if there wasn't, the fact that they talk about Israel all the time doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It's not the only issue in the world. And I think that like one of the things that we saw, I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump, never have been. But one of the things that we saw with the Abraham Accords and how it shifted things is that it really proved that whole line of thinking wrong. That, you know, the key to peace in the Middle East is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. No, it's not. It's not, and it never has been. And if we put all of this conflict with all the, the terrible things that, you know, we deal with, it's still not that much more uh, significant in, in any regard, in terms of like the actual warfare, in terms of the, the death toll on both sides. It's not that bad compared to everything else in the world. And people lose sight of that completely. And social media has made it worse by like a thousand times. Yeah. I think what I was trying to refer to earlier, when I think when I think of liberal values, right, I would think that we align Israel aligned with liberal values much better. Just as an example, right? 22 Arab nations, 45 Islamic countries, all with overwhelming Muslim majority, like 95 to 100% Muslim, right? Israel, yeah. one tiny Jewish state, only one who's democratic, liberal, multicultural, gender equality, rights for all, Jewish, Muslim, doesn't matter. And, and the Muslims in the government, right? Only country, I think, non-Muslim country in the world. Uh, 21 of the 20% of the country is Arab and they serve in every office imaginable. And then you call us an apartheid country. (laughs) I mean, what kind of upside down delusional world are we living in where we can't say what the facts are? Yeah, no, I, I, I understand you completely. And it's true that when it comes to liberal values, even progressive values, there's no comparison. Um, and I think it's not even close. Yeah, I think that as a result of what I was what I was saying before, as a result of the disproportionate coverage and how it's covered, um, what happens in Israel, people just don't know. Like, you know, if you don't care about the issue, either you're intentionally lying and going against Israel or you're someone who is actually digging and trying to find something. If you're just ambivalent, well, then your default, increasingly so, is going to be anti-Israel because all you hear is things that are factually untrue, like the apartheid accusation. Um, And I think that it's like things like this are really, these emotionally charged terms are really dangerous. um, And they have an impact, as we're seeing now, um, on Jewish communities outside of Israel too. Because people start latching on to these like super emotionally uh, charged and inflammatory terms and this rhetoric that's been normalized. You know, when I was at USC, it was like a few crazy people who everyone thought was crazy, except like the communist club, which was, you know, all of 15 people at USC too. That's (laughs) ironic. But, um, except for these people, everybody thought they're nuts, nuts. And now you have Ilhan Omar in us Congress and AOC and Rashida Tlaib standing on the house floor saying Israel is ethnic cleansing 
even though the population of Palestinian has, you know, quadrupled since 48, even, you know, they say that there's apartheid, even though we now have an Islamist, not just, not just Arab, an Islamist party in the coalition. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. And I actually had an argument. The new government was, was sworn in yesterday. I had an argument on Twitter with the, with the woman who I actually had previously debated on BBC, um, who was saying that, well, yeah, just because there's Arabs in the government doesn't mean there's not apartheid. Naftali Bennett is a racist, fascist, blah, blah, blah. And I responded like, listen, you can criticize Naftali Bennett, you can oppose his policies, but you cannot say that Israel is apartheid because it's actually untrue. That's exactly what that means, that there are Arabs in the government, that it is not apartheid. And you're just repeating things in order to get people upset and to incite against Israel uh, because you don't like it. Not everything you don't like is apartheid. Not everything you don't like about Israel is ethnic cleansing. And not everything Israel does wrong is ethnic cleansing or apartheid or genocide. And yet people just completely lose sight of this. And then they hear over and over again, oh, apartheid, oh, ethnic cleansing. And people don't know what the facts are. Last week there was a TikToker with like, sorry, <laughs> I'm talking so much. No, no, no. This, this is this is this is why this uh, platform is so great because this isn't. Yeah, no one's cutting you off. No one's gonna edit you. You can talk as long as you want. Okay. So uh, last week I saw that there's a a blonde American girl doesn't live here, um, not Jewish, I don't think at least, and she did a video about how you know, oh, Israel is in the wrong because they're every day, they're bombing Palestinian children every day. What? No one's bombing anyone. They're not bombing us. We're not bombing them. Nothing is happening with children. Like, and nobody cares. This has like 10 million views, 10 million views. And nobody thought to like, I don't know, Google, oh, what's going on in Israel? (laughs) What's going on in Israel today? And this is a new video. It's not from the war. It's a new video that she made. The, the problem is, is the algorithm is not a fact checker. The algorithm is, it is looking for the most engagement and inflammatory and sensationalist headlines and, and, and clickbait titles will get that. So the more people, you know, all you need to do is look on uh, YouTube, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the um, what do you call them? The little squares where you see what the picture is of the video. And, you know, half of them is just unrelated to the video itself. Right. (laughs) But you'll click on it because it looks interesting. And that's what it is. So you we can get you can get away with anything nowadays because it doesn't matter. I'm not a media company. You can say, oh, I can say what like Bella Hadid. Right. She put out that stupid video. I don't even know if she saw the, the debunking of it. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But it would brilliant, by the way. I loved it. But we're just we're we're living in a post truth era, it seems. Yeah. And no one really cares. No one cares about the truth when it is against their truth. When it's for their truth, everyone cares. But when it's something else, then it's no, you know, I don't know. It's this and that and the other. So it really does feel like we're living in a post truth era. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I think that. Social media has had a huge role in this and it's really um, frightening. <laughs> Which one's really the worst, do you think? Which social media platform's the worst? Twitter. Twitter. Actually, now TikTok. Okay. Um, but other than TikTok, uh, Twitter. Twitter has been for a while. They're the least compliant when it co- and always have been 
when it comes to issues with terrorist organizations and, um, you know, help bots also at the behest of countries, you know, uh, that was just discovered that Iran is behind a bunch of bots that were tweeting anti-Semitic things and not like, oh, Israel is bad, whatever. Like they were tweeting phrases like Hitler is right. En masse. Yeah. Thousands oh, that of was trending. Bots. Yeah. 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 So we know that like there are countries who are using and Turkey also is a huge country that's used a lot of uh, social media campaigns, we'll say, um, with bots to promote certain messaging. In the case of Turkey, a lot of them were focused on criticizing people who criticized Erdogan, for example. But they've also done stuff, uh, organized efforts against Israel on social media. Russia does a lot of this as well. And I think that the social media networks, they're always like a step behind, it seems, um, both with incitement. You know, in 2015, I was very active also in, you know, through working with social media companies through Knesset, because there was a Knesset uh, inquiry as to social media's refusal to remove Arabic incitement to violence um, that was fueling dozens of stabbing attacks and car ramming attacks in Israel. Um, and I remember that I spoke in a Knesset committee about like how severe it was and everybody said, and this was like midway through there had been, I don't know, 30, we'll say, uh, attacks. And then I think there were another 20 or so after this. And everybody said like, oh yes, this is a problem. This is a problem. Oh, we're working on it. We're working on it. What is working on it? You have people who are reporting anti-Semitic and explicit calls to violence and your community standards aren't removing it. Yeah. Like there is, there is no working, you working on it means more people are dead tomorrow. Like, and, and then, you know, they dealt with it. And actually after that, Facebook has been pretty good about dealing with like clear cut incitement to violence. But then we see another, another phenomenon, another wave of something. Then you see the electoral interfering that happened a few years after. And then, Oh, after only after the fact, then they, you know, play catch up and, oh, oh, we'll deal with it this way. We'll deal with it that way. And now same thing. You have all kinds of anti-Semitism. And last year I did like a huge uh, social media campaign for the adopting the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which it's like a framework that includes different uh, forms of anti-Semitism today. Um, and some of them include how anti-Zionism is used as like a replacement word for classical anti-Semitism. So, you know, people would say, and I don't, you know, I don't hate Jews. I just hate uh, Zionists mm -hmm. because they want to kill all Palestinian babies. <laughs> yeah. So we know that all you have to do is replace the word Zionist with Jews. And this is a classic anti-Semitic trope. But it's OK to say anti-Zionist because somehow that is supposed to be legitimate criticism of Israel. So this definition is a consensus organization of different Jewish organizations and leaders who said, like, no, <laughs> This is anti-Semitism and this has real world consequences. So a lot of different organizations, both Jewish and non-Jewish um, and universities even have adopted this as sort of a framework of, of approaching anti-Semitism wherever it may manifest and social media networks have not. So we were saying one of the largest um, promoters, I guess, even if inadvertent of anti-Semitism is on social media today. And they need to be better equipped at dealing with it and removing it or, or educating about it, you know, putting like a warning about the content that people are posting, whether it's Holocaust denial or, or something else. And they, it took them like a year at least to do anything, yeah. anything. 
Until last year, Holocaust denial was allowed on almost all of the platforms except Google. Like when I started this campaign. Yeah. Now, uh, TikTok and Facebook and Twitter have all said that Holocaust denial is not permitted. The only place I've really seen a significant change has been Facebook, which is still, you know, it's an ongoing process. They're working all the time. But like Twitter, I mean, Twitter in the, when, when Jack was in, interrog- interrogated, I don't know if that's the right word, but when Jack was interviewed, we'll say, <laughs> uh, by the U.S. Congress, he said explicitly that they wouldn't remove Holocaust denial, even though they had already changed their policy to say that they would. I mean, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. And only once you see, oh, Jews are actually being targeted on the streets in Los Angeles. Jews are being beat up in Times Square. Jews are being attacked in in London. And there are crazy pro-Palestinians driving through the streets chanting about raping Jews. Then, oh, anti-Semitism is a problem. We should we should do something about that. <laughs> where were you? Where were you the last year and a half when we were trying to get you to reframe how you approach anti-Semitism on your platform? And I think it's really important that, that I say this doesn't mean censoring everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you want to criticize or critique Zionism, go for it. But you can't make like uh, generalized overarching statements that say, you know, only the Jews don't have the right to self-determination and only the Jews can be criticized for certain behaviors. And, you know, it, oh, I don't, I don't hate Jews. I just hate Zionists. Like you can't, another example, SJP on campus, there was a video that went viral, an American now, a Holocaust survivor, never lived in Israel, not an Israeli citizen. He spoke on a campus about hate speech. I think this was a year and a half ago already. Um, an SJP student stands up and demanded that he condemn Israel's oppression of Palestinians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the thing is that, like, obviously this is anti-Semitic. Demanding that Jews who have nothing to do with Israeli policy answer for the policies of the state of Israel is outrageous. But so many people thought, like, that that's fine. It was, it was like only the Jewish community largely that thought that this was problematic when, you know, when I saw this video going around. It's also (laughs) funny that like, if you think about, I don't know, let's just take the last two wars, right? Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would have to guess hundreds of thousands of people killed by the U S army in those two wars. So if we're just talking number wise, it's not even close. Like the, 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 all the wars combined uh, be, uh, between like, Pal- you know, Palestinians, Gaza, West Bank, et cetera, and Israel, they don't even scratch that the, anywhere close to that number. So if we're just talking number wise, but why doesn't, why doesn't that, why isn't that applicable? If you are placing people with government, why is that applicable to U.S. citizens, you would say, right? But no one's telling U.S. citizens, hey, why don't you start, you know, condemning your government that's killed all these, you know, Muslim people across. It's just such a, I don't know, but forget that. That's a, that's a side note. It just drives me crazy, the stupidity of it. But if we're talking about, you know, censorship and, and, and free speech on social media, that's something that always, I'm always conflicted. On the one hand, if we are going to have free speech, right, without incitement, which is, it, that's also like, it's, it's a little, it can't be subjective. It's like, if you want to do free speech for everything, I'm fine with that. Like Wild West, let everyone say whatever they want about any topic, any subject. But then if you're going to, you know, ban 
Trump or ban people that dead name people, meaning like calling them by their former name. But then you're going to keep the spiritual leader of Iran when he says we're going to annihilate Israel. Then it's like, all right, this isn't a level playing field. You got one set of rules for one people and then another set of rules for something else. And it just kind of not really objective. It's up to the whims of the social media gods, whatever they feel is is the most popular thing. And that's what they'll go on. So at that point, it's like, okay, now we see what side or what camp you're on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my approach and not everyone, like even in this field and in the Jewish community agrees with me, but my uh, opinion is that I don't think they should remove anti-Semitic content. (laughs) If the content would be legally prosecutable, mm-hmm. like uh, actually something that can be proven to incite violence, that could be proven in a court, remove it. Yeah. Everything outside of that, I'm not in favor of removing. I'm in favor of them putting something over it or under it or a warning so that people can learn more about this information. I think that they should use it as an educational tool and not just for Jews with anti-Semitism, but also for other forms of hate as well. People want to post like crazy homophobic stuff. Okay, put a warning on it. And it's their choice to use this platform. It's their choice to use Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And if they don't like it, they don't have to use it. It's a private company. But I do think that the companies, even though they're private, have an obligation to the public to do something in order to educate it, because we've seen the consequences when they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not really, I'm not a fan of, of censorship in almost any way. Um, but I do think that that there needs to be something done to, to educate people also about different forms, you know, different race, racism against anti-Black racism, for example. Um, I don't think it should just go scot-free. <laughs> I yeah. think it should, uh, I think it should be called out but not necessarily removed. And you know what? I also think it's important that people see that these forms of bigotry exist. I know people personally um, who really don't think, for example, that racism exists in America anymore. Of course, racism exists in America. Of course it does. Of course it's an issue. Is it as much as some people say? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you can debate about that all you want, but the reality is that there is racism in America today, just like there's anti-Semitism. Um, and people need to understand that. And we need these examples to be able to point out also as warnings that this type of rhetoric or this type of behavior is not acceptable. And we can't do that if people think it don't, doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, it exists everywhere. Uh, to yeah. think that that's why when I, when I sometimes hear people say, oh, America is the most racist country. I'm like, you haven't traveled. <laughs> like you haven't been to many places, I'm, I'm assuming, because it's probably the least racist, one of the most progressive, especially now, uh, countries in the world. Is it number one? Uh, I don't know. Is it one of the leading ones? For sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, catch up to do in a lot of countries. And yeah, it's just it's 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 a wrong statement to put out there. But um, I want to go over a few things just so people can maybe have have the facts. Um, I saw that you put out a great video again um, about what happened in, in Sheikh Jarech. And mm-hmm. maybe you can explain to people because, again, misinformation, uh, what the story was, was not actually what happened. So can you maybe break it down for people what exactly happened? 
Sure. So one of the prevailing myths uh, about Israel is that Israel's existence required uh, Israel to expel Palestinians en masse from their homes and that it was their land and their country and that the Jews just came in and took it from them. Um, and this is a intentional and organized effort to disguise what the reality of the situation is around Israel's founding. Now, I'm not saying that no one was expelled because some of the, some of them, some Palestinians were, or they weren't Palestinians at the time, but some Arabs were. Um, a lot of them fled also, and a lot of them stayed and are now right. citizens. Um, so the truth is obviously more complex, but that's not easy for people to pay attention to. So um, they just hear, oh, yes, Israel is expelling Palestinians from their home and has been since 48. This is what led to the narrative of Sheikh Jarrah and, and what's happening even now. Um, the reality is that this specific property in Jerusalem, or yeah, in Jerusalem, was um, purchased by a Jewish person in 1874 um, and it, under the Ottomans, when the Ottomans controlled this area. And they maintained ownership of this land. There was nothing on it at the time until they sold it to like another Jewish organization in the forties, I think it was, it was, tr was transferred several times to different Jewish individuals or organizations um, throughout the British uh, occupation of Jerusalem. And then after that, even the Jordanian occupation. Now, when the Jordanians occupied uh, East Jerusalem, they built several homes or buildings, uh, apartment homes, for Palestinian families there. They didn't give them the homes, they didn't have ownership of it, but they were built for them to live in. The Palestinians have never owned these homes, the families who are there, um, and they have no evidence that they have, mm -hmm. which is why there's a conflict now. <laughs> because the actual owners of the property who do have the literal deed uh, went to the Israeli courts after the unification of Jerusalem and wanted to uh, obtain that property back or collect rent as they were the legal owners. Um, and it's also important to note that Jews, Jewish people were expelled by the Jordanians when they occupied East Jerusalem. The Jews that were from there, the Jews that had lived there even for hundreds of years were expelled by the Jordanians. So this is also uh, when the city of Jerusalem was, was unified, it was the first time that, these, that the, the owners of the property had access to it either. So when they went to appeal to the courts, the courts asked them to uh, come to a mediation or agreement together. Palestinians who lived there refused and said that they weren't going to pay rent because they were the owners, even though they had no proof that they were the owners. Um, and then this turned into a lengthy court battle over 10 years, and it's still ongoing um, because these families and their future generations um, have refused to um, pay rent, basically. Yeah. And as a result of that, the courts decided that some of the family, not all of them, but some of these houses in question where they couldn't prove any sort of ownership and the other side could, and they hadn't paid rent for years, um, should be evicted on the basis of not paying their rent. Now, obviously, this is more complex than a simple real estate dispute. Mm -hmm. um, I see people, like people responded to my video even saying like, oh, well, that's insulting to say it's just a real estate dispute. It's not. It's an unpleasant situation for everyone involved. It's very, very difficult. And I'm sure it's very painful and upsetting for Palestinian families who have lived there for several generations to feel like they're being thrown out of their homes. But they didn't own the property. And that's the point. 
They didn't own it. They never owned it. And they can't prove that they owned it. Well, someone else can. And that sucks. And they never wanted but to they, pay either. They were reluctant yeah, to pay. Exactly. No, no, they didn't have to be kicked out of their homes. They yeah. could have paid. They didn't want to out of a political ideology, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that sucks. And I understand their motivation. But to say that it's, it's you know, oh, Israel is kicking Palestinians out of their homes again is not true. It's just not true. Um, and it... it conflicts with all of the facts on the ground about this case. I mean, the New York Times wrote an article that was like 4,000 words about this entire Sheikh Jarrah case, and not once did they mention that the Palestinians don't have ownership of the land, period, and never did. Yeah. So there's been a lot of, I guess, evasion of the, the facts of the case, and, you know, it's not an ideal situation. I don't think that, you know, I don't know, it's not like I know the organization that control, that owns the property legally, but I don't think that they even would have wanted this or they would never have proposed that the Palestinians who live there can pay rent. This wasn't an organized and concerted effort by the Israeli government to expel Palestinians from their home. It wasn't, yeah. um, even though other people are saying that. And they're also criticizing the courts and saying, oh, well, the courts are biased. And of course, they're ruling against Palestinians. These are the same courts that have thrown Jews out of their home. Mm-hmm. When when they were illegally built, um, and the Israeli courts regularly rule against Israelis. This happens all the time, all the time. Whether it's illegal buildings or evictions or whatever, um, the Israeli court system is, is criticized within Israel for being too left, <laughs> yeah, too too in favor of the Palestinians. So there's just a total lack of of understanding about the facts of the case, um, and the result has been that. People with ulterior motives like Hamas, like Iran, and even like the Palestinian Authority, have used this to incite within their own communities against Israel um, to launch protests, violent protests like what happened to Al-Aqsa, and then ultimately, like we saw in May, um, to launch a war. So then this is the extreme, but the danger of just not giving a shit yeah. about facts. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that, that's the crux of it. I think we, the wars, we have, you know, if, if you look out from 48 and all the different wars we've had, you know, largely we've been successful. Um, and even now with, with the technology and with the advanced intel and information and the army that we have, that part, I feel like we've got it down. You know, I don't know what will happen in the future, but for now, but we're definitely losing on the social media aspect. And I was thinking just sheer numbers, it's almost impossible to win. If you have, I don't know what, 14 million Jews across the world, roughly 12 to 14 million, something like that. And then you have over a billion Muslims. And then you have a lot of people who support them as well. How then? You know, it's a David and Goliath type numbers. That's not really something that you can thwart, that you can go up against. And I mean, I see, you know, you guys, and I see other people, obviously, and that do it. But it it almost seems sometimes like a um, you know a drop in the ocean. Like, do you feel like that sometimes, or or you know, do you kind of? I, I mean, of course, because at the end of the day, social media is a numbers game, and we will always lose because there's not that many of us yeah. <laughs> or not as many. Um, you know, people always say, oh, Israeli Hasbara is so bad. It's so bad. They never do anything. We're like, how many million people? 
If every single Israeli was super active and dedicated their life to Hasbara, guess what? We would still be outnumbered. Yeah. The rest <laughs> would still be skewed against Israel. So I think that there's a somewhat unreasonable expectation from like Jewish community and also from Israelis when it comes to Hasbara. That being said, um, the, the problem is that if we do nothing and if we just don't engage, and I know a lot of people who, people who agree with me, but like, you know, oh, I can't be bothered. Like, I don't want to get involved in all this like social media stuff because it's so ugly. On the one hand, they're right. On the other hand, you never know who's going to see your stuff. It, it may be someone who has tremendous influence, even if it's only one person. I mean, look at how much problems Bella Hadid caused. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's I didn't not, even know about her up until a few months ago. I haven't I've never even heard that name. Yeah, maybe that's just me. She's just for taking pictures. <laughs> she's not known for her uh for intellectual her prowess. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um but yeah, I mean you don't know who's gonna see it. And and the problem is that if there's nothing on the other side, then there's no debate. And people don't know that there's even another side represented. So at this point, it isn't even about winning the battle on social media. It's about showing that there is a battle and that there is another side and about influencing the people that we can influence and building relationships with the people who we can build relationships with or, or allyships with mm -hmm. um, because the alternative is far worse. And we see that when the lies go unaddressed, they get more extreme. And it continues to happen. So that's the reason that I think it's so important to continue to be involved. And even though uh, what I saw this time with, with the conflict was that the anti-Semitism in response that I received, I've never seen this level of hate. I've never seen it. And before it was always like, oh, you're a pro-Israel troll, you know, cursing at me and stuff. I got thousands of death threats. Really? Thousands. I've never had that happen. There was a call on like the dark web to hack all of my accounts. Wow. Unfortunately for them, I also work with a cybersecurity company. So good yeah. luck. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, that, um, but that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. Like, like attacks. There were a bunch of uh, Malaysians who like made memes of my face. There was someone who made a fake account saying that, that this was the real, luckily my account's verified, but they made a fake Twitter account of me and started messaging and tweeting at people who follow me. I'm a slut. Oh, wow. <laughs> like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and part of that is because like, I'm a huge activist. So mm -hmm. that's not going to happen to somebody who's like, actually I support Israel for the most part. You might get some comments. It's not going to be at that level. So I don't want to like scare people. But at the same time, there is a concerted effort to silence people who are speaking up on social media, especially yeah. during times of conflict. And that's an, I know it sounds crazy because it's counterintuitive, but that's another reason that it's so important to fight back Yeah, because it can't be that we have, you know, millions of Jews around the world and supporters of Jews who just like are afraid to talk about anything because people are going to dox them and post crazy shit on their accounts and all of the stuff that, that, that does happen sometimes when you have, when you have big activists. Um, but it's, it's unacceptable. Yeah. And I think that we also need to call on social media networks to be much more aggressive about this. That account that I mentioned, for example, it, I, it, it still is up but like Twitter removed like certain messages. That's crazy. 
<laughs> That's crazy. Crazy. It's obviously a concerted effort to make a fake account in my name with my picture, which by the way is a copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. Um, yet Twitter doesn't say that this is against the rules. Like there's no legal basis for that. This is not legitimate criticism or commentary, even under U.S. law. Like someone is using your photos that you have the copyrights to, it's illegal. I could sue the person except they're in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> and, who and, know, and who knows how real they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But these social media networks, they, they have an obligation to remove content like this. And they don't, or at least not fast enough. And, and that's, a, that's a huge problem. Actually, just last week, there's another example. Um, Muna, Muna El-Kurd, who is one of the Sheikh Jarrah, like activists. She and her brother are like huge activists that are on the international media tour about how Israel makes their life horrible and on and on and on. Um, so she has posted for years um, photos of her role model, whom she calls her role model, Dalal Mugrabi who is the Palestinian terrorist who is responsible for the Coastal Road Massacre in which 38 Israelis were killed and 13 children. And she has, it's her phone cover. She has like a picture taking a selfie. Fatah, which is the Palestinian uh, political party of Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, they posted a photo of her praising her and saying, oh, you're just like your role model. We're so proud of you. Yeah. Um, I reported this. I got a message from Facebook saying that this wasn't against their terms. So glorifying someone who murdered 13 children isn't against their community stance. Now, eventually the photo was removed, but why did it take them a week to remove it? Yeah. How is that acceptable? Yeah. You know, yeah. Meanwhile, all these, all these other Palestinians see it and think, oh yes, it's totally cool to glorify a child killer. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of um, conflation with with what's happening here with social issues and then what's going on in other parts of the world, which is a problem. But I saw this stat recently. It said Spain translates more books into Spanish each year than the entire Arab world has translated into Arabic since the ninth century. More books are translated into Hebrew, a country with less than 10 million people, than in Arabic, hundreds of millions of people each year. So most of the content they consume online is in Arabic as well. They're essentially closed off from getting balanced, nuanced perspective on many, many, many issues. And they're almost in the dark with regards to like so much information. And that kind of just sparked that because when you said, I don't know any other country that terrorists are being glor, you know, like here in the U.S., like who are the, you know, who are the stars? Who are the, who, who do kids look up to? Uh, LeBron James, right? Or uh, I don't know, some other football star or some baseball star. Go to Europe. It's it's football. It's Ronaldo. It's Messi. In Israel, it's I don't know, same thing, right? Like no kid is glorifying and saying, "Ooh, I wish I could be like this terrorist that killed thirteen kids." But here, it's. I don't want to say it's standard, but it's common. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like one of the, I don't want to say mistakes, but we'll say shortcomings of Oslo from the beginning. They were supposed to, when the, when Israel and the Palestinians signed this peace agreement, education and not teaching uh, hate to Palestinians and also Israelis um, was part of it. And this is something that we see has not only been, you know, not only has the Palestinian leadership failed on, they've done the opposite. Um, and they've glorified people who are openly and explicitly violent. They have an entire ministry that's paying 
people who carry out acts of terrorism. And this is like a publicly known fact. Um, you know, there are some countries who are like, oh, we need to re-examine aid, but somehow the aid keeps coming through. Yeah. Um, even though we know that the Palestinian Authority is paying terrorists. And the part that's most crazy to me is that, let's say um, Mahmoud Abbas wants to stop this. He can't. Yeah. He can't because the public opinion would go against him because they've created a society in which the, they've educated the public to think one thing. And so because they've educated the public to, want, to think one thing, they can't make a change because the public will go against them and then will you know, vote when they have elections, if they ever have elections, for Hamas. Or they'll forcibly overthrow Fatah which is also a possibility. Um, and then you have terrorists controlling the West Bank, just like they control Gaza now. So the incitement is sort of, it's almost like a vicious cycle um, because they educate about it and then they have more of it. And then because they have more of it, then they glorify it and they educate it more. At some point, they have to change their approach. There has to be somebody uh, with leadership and enough power and respect in the Palestinian society to make this change. And we just don't see anything like that right now. Not even, you know, not from Hamas, who obviously doesn't want that. But let's say they did. They don't have enough power. Yeah. Um, and definitely not from Fatah. So there's nobody who can make that sort of cultural change in how they view things um, in order to show that, like, okay, this is not a good thing. And the part that's really alarming to me is that we see the opposite happening abroad. We see the normalization of glorifying people who are violent, um, which is you know what you see with the with the El Kurd twins. I mean, they're on MSNBC, a CNN, really? talking about how Israel is uh, Israel is t- so terrible to them. And on their Facebook publicly, Mohammed El Kurd does most of his stuff in English too. It's not like it's in Arabic. Mm-hmm. He's whitewashing Al Qaeda and saying that Al-Qaeda is actually the fault of the United States. He's celebrating the burning of American flags. He's regularly bashing and, and calling for violence, obviously against Israelis, but also against Americans. Mm-hmm. And nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares about this. They have, I, just this morning, I saw a picture on Muna Al-Kurd's social media. Uh, it was older, it was from a few years ago, but like a photo of Hitler about how uh, she wants him to uh, play. It was a picture of, of Hitler and his uh, girlfriend, and how she wants to hear the music that she was sing- that, that she was singing in the picture. Like, why are you posting pictures of Hitler, and why is everyone okay with this? Like, did, did no one think that this is that this is problematic? People are normalizing and excusing this behavior, and, they, and, and they see the same thing with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Amar. Okay, maybe they're not posting pictures of Hitler, but the rhetoric that they're using at a time when Israel was literally taking 4,500 rockets at civilians, which uh, even one is a war crime, mm-hmm. they're standing on the House floor saying, and Ilhan Amar said that Israeli airstrikes targeting Hamas facilities exclusively are, are terrorism. Yeah. That Israel Israel self defense at all is terrorism. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's American crazy. drone strikes in Pakistan is uh, is, is 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 freedom. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I know you have to go in a couple of minutes. So I just wanna uh, I want to ask you a question. When we're seeing like and 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 you know, there's we're barely scratched the surface. Like I could, we could have this conversation for another three hours and we won't even touch on 50% of the, the stuff I want to ask you. But when we're seeing stuff like, 
when we're seeing all the, the the fake pictures and the fake news and the stories and edited videos, right? Like we're seeing a lot of stuff also just completely false, right? There's a whole uh, hashtag Pollywood where they're actually creating fabricated stories of things that are not happening and then they're editing it and sending it to the media as if they're facts or if there's something that's happened, but it didn't, it didn't really happen. And then with Hamas, right. They will show you very um, horrific pictures of like a kid that got hit by, uh, by a rocket. Israel will never do that because they respect the family. So whenever Hamas rocket hits a six year old in Israel um, out of respect for the family, they will show the a picture of the kid like a you know a nice picture but they will never show the 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 person that got hit and for viewers when they see that you know okay here's the one kid that's maimed horrific uh the people who did this are horrific and then they see this other picture which is just like a nice kid i i, I don't think it's it it doesn't sell the same right it's for lack yeah. of a better term what can and I, and I don't know if you have the answer because this is almost like an, an impossible answer, but what can Israel do in this era of social media where everyone is a broadcaster and algorithms decide what goes viral? How do you put forth a story that resonates with people in this in this sea of misinformation? Like, I, I, you know, I do feel sometimes like it's a losing battle, but are there tactics, are there strategies that we can implement? Like, what are things that people can can do to get the story across in, in, in a better way? So I think that the first, there's a, there's a few different things that we can do. The first thing that's important to do is obviously, and this is the least effective, so I'll start with this, is obviously correcting when there's misinformation and calling it out. Um, and another aspect of this that's super important is that you identify the lack of credibility in the, the person who's talking about it or the person who's claiming it. So when they say 200 people died in Gaza, well, yes. And you know, that's sad. <laughs> Obviously we don't want that, yeah. but those numbers are coming from Hamas because Hamas controls the ministry of health. <laughs> so yeah. let's just wait and not freak out about it until we have independent people reviewing what actually occurred. Um, or at least seeing what the other side, meaning Israel, is saying about which people they targeted that were terrorists, how many civilian casualties there were. And that's a very difficult place to be in because of the things that you just mentioned. It's it's not it's hard to respond with the death to the death of a child, which obviously is a tragedy um, with. OK, but let's look at the facts. Yeah. You need to. Mm-hmm. But it's not what our initial reaction is as human beings, you know, we want to say like, wow, this is outrageous. Someone needs to be held accountable for it. Unfortunately, that's part of war. Um, And that's the reality that you're dealing with when you deal with situations like a terrorist organization that is a few kilometers from Israeli citizens. So again, it's like, is same as Sheikh Jarrah. Like there, there is no easy answer. It's an unpleasant situation for everybody. It's not what we want. Israel doesn't want to kill kids. You know, and they do a lot in order to avoid this, which is why you have footage that, you know, the army calling off airstrikes because there are children around. Whenever there's content like this, it's important to put out, even if it's not the most compelling message, um, even if it's not the best response, it's still important to say. And then also when the IDF calls, they call to evacuate buildings every time. So it's important to show this this information. And one of the which, videos by the way, no other army in the world does that. Of course, yeah. of course. And that's also important to mention. So all these things need to be said. It's it's content that needs to be put out if and when it's available. 
Um, and Israel as a country has an obligation, especially the army, to get this out as soon as possible, whenever and wherever it occurs. That's their role. Our, our role and other supporters of Israel or just other people who want to present a more accurate picture of what's happening, their role is to amplify those messages and to try to call for more reasonable and nuanced debate. Now, the other thing that I think is really important that people are missing, and this doesn't just apply to Israel, is that the entire narrative of the state of Israel is under attack. And that's part of the reason that there's disproportionate focus on Israel whenever there's a conflict. But it's not about it just being a conflict. It's about the existence of the state of Israel for a lot of people as the critics. I think that it's really important that we change the way that we talk about the foundation of the state of Israel and the reason it exists in the first place. Israel doesn't exist because of the Holocaust or because of anti-Semitism. Israel exists because Jews are indigenous to this land and Jews were here for thousands of years and Jews were colonized also by Arabs, by, by multiple groups and expelled repeatedly. So if you want to talk about social justice and you want to talk about being woke and you want to talk about um, fighting for justice in all the ways that people who use this to criticize Israel today, accusing it of colonialism and things like this, it's the opposite. Yeah. It's the opposite. And I, my personal political beliefs, I'm not a fan of like the victimhood, you know, contest. But if you want to talk about victimhood, fine. There is no more oppressed people in the history of humanity than the Jewish people. And if I have to go through every single attack that ever occurred in every single country against Jews, we will. Yeah, it will be <laughs> that a long needs list. To be our approach. Yeah, that needs to be our approach. And it's great that the Jewish people are, you know, empowered and that we have a country and that we are no longer going to be held back by victimhood. But that doesn't mean we can lose sight of what the reality is, because other people will. Which is what I said before, why, why Holocaust education is so important. Another thing that has been lost in much of Western culture is the oppression, the massive oppression that Jews in Arab countries face. People don't, even Jews, a lot of Jews in America don't know this. Men are Jews. The, the, uh, they were, uh, we, I wanted to talk about earlier, there uh, what, um, a million Jews were expelled from Arab nations after World War II? Pogroms, yeah. right? They their stuff was uh, stolen. They were beaten. They were murdered. They were chased out of the country. They had to leave all their goods behind. Out of how many countries? What to 10, 20 countries? How many? I don't know the exact number. At least nine, because yeah. I did a report on nine different ones. So. <laughs> Um, and then also you have Iran, which occurred a little bit later because of the Islamic Revolution. Also, it's not technically an Arab country, but same thing, the oppression of the Jewish community, which continues until today. Although they love to say, we have Jews, we have Jews. Yes, yeah, as long yeah. as they keep quiet and support the regime. Yeah. <laughs> and like how many do guys and how many do you have? Like how, a couple of thousand? What? Something yeah. like that? Like in total, all the Jews in Arab nations across all the Arab world probably total 10,000, if I'm being generous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you also see like, you know, people say I've had responses in, in content that I put out about what happened to the Arab, you know, just from Arab countries. Um, and they said, well, this happened because of Israel. People did it in response to Israel. So it was just sort of like a byproduct of war. No, that's not the case. If you look at the history in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, Iraq was a little bit better um, prior to prior to the Nazis, actually, because their government under the Nazis, that's why the Farhud happened, which was a pogrom against the Jewish community there by the Muslims. Their government was Nazi allied. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why that occurred. Uh, but other in Iraq before that, it was a little bit better for Jews. They were very successful and very wealthy. But like Yemen, Yemen has oppressed Jews for centuries. They had forced conversion laws. 
They had a law where they would take the eldest child and force him to be a Muslim and live with a Muslim family. That was the policy. You could have, you could be beat up legally if you walked on the wrong side of a Muslim. Like these were laws on the books in like 1800. Like this, this wasn't a new phenomenon, the oppression of Jewish minorities under Muslim rule all throughout the Middle East. This was the case. It has been the case for, for decades. Um, so to say, to, to respond to it by saying, oh, well, it's just as a result of, you know, Israel and what Israel did, even though Israel did nothing to those countries yep. <laughs> um, in 48 is ridiculous. And so I think it's important to really know our history and be able to talk about it and to be able to talk um, about what happened, not just like with Ashkenazi history, but also with uh, with Mizrahi. It's, it's super, super important because people don't know this stuff. And, you know, in America, there's a misperception that Jews are white. Um, and, and yeah, some Jews are white passing on myself, for example, um, definitely. And there is like a certain level of, of privilege when people see someone like that, they assume certain things. Okay, fine. That's true. But no Jew is white. No Jew is white by, by the standards of how they talk about being white in, in the scale of, you know, in the intersectional, uh, in the intersectional thought, I guess there's no such thing as a white Jew. And this is like a very pernicious myth that's been that's been uh, promoted by people like Linda Sarsour in order to delegitimize Jews, not Israel, Jews. And I think it needs to be more aggressively called out. That doesn't mean aggressively be against those people. It means we need to be confident in our history and in our narrative as a people, as a people who are returning home. Not exclusive doesn't mean that Palestinians can't exist, but that's not our issue. Our issue is that Jews are returning home. That's what we need to focus on from from day one, whether there's a conflict in Israel or there's not a conflict in Israel. That's the story of the Jewish people. And that's what we need to be confident in. We shouldn't be answering to, oh, well, what do you think about a two state solution? I mean, maybe as an Israeli, yes, but as, as a Jew in America, we shouldn't be answering to it. Who cares what some, you know, you know, Shlomo in, in Los Angeles thinks about whether or not he supports a two-state solution. It's not his job to make a two-state solution. Yeah. It's his job to be a Jew who's proud of his identity, who is able to walk confidently with a Megin David without being harassed by people. Yeah. And that's what we need to promote. We don't have to answer to anybody who asks about, you know, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian government, Israeli settlements. Who cares? Who cares? fact of the matter is that Jews should be able to live A, in their homeland where they were ethnically cleansed and expelled from and B, anywhere they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anywhere they want. And, and I'm not saying that because I support settlements because politically speaking, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't change the fact that, that Jews have a right to self-determination the same as any other people. Yes, also Palestinians. Um, and that is something that people lose sight of. Yeah. And as a side note, whenever the opportunity uh, presented itself over the years to make peace. There was peace. Uh, there was peace with Jordan and there's peace with Egypt. And now with the Abraham Accords, there's three new countries, um, that, and with, you know, Dubai, uh, UAE, sorry. Uh, it seems like there's, a, almost like, a, such a loving relationship between the two nations. Like I'm dying to get over there. So whenever there's an opportunity, there's no you know, it's a funny, a few years back, I, I brought my wife over for the first time to Israel 
And after, I don't know, maybe 10 days or so, a week or so, something like that, one of the first things she kind of said to me as, as just a, an analysis that she was, you know, going over in her head, she was like, I, I had no idea how like integrated Arabs and, and, and Jews were. She could, because, you know, coming from the U.S., hearing all the stuff that you hear in the U.S., she literally thought like, oh, it would be like Jews on one side, Arabs on the other side. And then she was like, no, everywhere you go, it's all mixed together. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what it is. But people don't get that story and they don't get that point of view because all they hear is the bullshit that the media spews. Yeah. So there is no hate. I mean, there is there is there's hate in the sense that of, of, of a neighboring country that's trying to kill you. But there is no deep rooted hate between from from Israel, for the most part, against there is a, a willingness yeah. to coexist. There is a like you said, self-determination. But people want to live together. People want to go to, to, to people would love to go to what to Lebanon or to Saudi Arabia. Like they would love that. But yep. that's not the reality at the moment. Yeah, you're totally, totally right. And I think you really hit on something that actually as being an American and an Israeli, that has been really interesting for me to see, because I think that in the day to day, oh, it depends on where you are, too. But in the day to day, there is not a lot of racism. And again, I'm from California, so it's a little bit different on the street between blacks and whites, for example, with the exception of when there's something that comes up that causes, you know, tensions or whatever riots. Fine. Um, growing up, I didn't see that much of it, but I knew it existed. And I knew that there are people who harbor a lot of truly racist views in their heart. Um, and maybe not in California, but in some other areas of the country, even if it doesn't always manifest, because there's this history, there's a history of slavery and also after this Jim Crow. Um, and it's different here, even though you see tensions um, because Israel's dealing with a lot of wars and a lot of conflict. Um, it's different here because you don't really see the same, even when there's racism, which of course there's racism, there are people who are racist. Um, but even from, from these perspectives, most of the time it's coming from a place where you have terrorism and you have trauma from recent uh, conflict and war. So it's issues that both countries need to deal with and continue to deal with and have dealt with a lot, but there's more work to be done. Um, on both sides, but it's, it's very different. And that's why I think comparing like, you know, Black Lives Matter or whatever to Palestinians is so, like does a disservice honestly to both sides. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that, you know, when black people protest because there is a brutality that is completely unnecessary by police, um, I don't think that you're doing them a service by saying that it's the same thing as Palestinian terrorists. <laughs> you know, I think that's yeah. really insulting um, to them. And, and yet we see sort of a conflation and we saw it, especially with this last conflict, people thought that uh, defending Palestinians or Palestinian right to self-defense, there is no Palestinian right to self-defense because Israel isn't fighting Palestinians. Mm -hmm. We were never fighting Palestinian people. Like we are talking about a terrorist organization and it's like people didn't understand this. And if they did, well, then that's even worse yeah. <laughs> because then you're comparing people who, who, you know, in, in many cases are fighting a just cause fighting against racism for equality. Um, and you're comparing them to Hamas. 
Like it's just, it's just crazy. It's crazy to me. There, there are different things. You can't be Americanizing every conflict. Um, it's not the same thing. It's a different set of circumstances. It's a different background. Um, and it's problematic for, for both sides when you do so. Probably getting myself into trouble talking about racial relations here. <laughs> yeah. Well, this whole episode is one big uh, getting yourself into trouble episode. So right. it's fine. But like, yeah, <laughs> like you, you would see free Gaza. I'm like, Gaza is free. We're not in Gaza. We left yeah. literally in 2006 and they get funds every year. They could build infrastructure. They could make it a better place just like any other country would, right? You would, you have investment, you go, you put that investment into people, into infrastructure, into school, into maybe even tourism or whatever it is that you think can grow the economy, can make it a better place. But instead you go and you build tunnels and billions of dollars worth of, 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 of money into tunnels and into rockets. Uh, Not a good investment. It's not the best ROI, you know? So yeah, it's anyway, it's I know it's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. But um, Emily, I know you got to go. I'm sorry. I kept you longer than I said I would. But, uh, you know, it's just there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the best place? Where can people find you online? So my Instagram is Emily in Tel Aviv altogether, like the TV show, but not in Paris, in Tel Aviv. <laughs> and um, and my uh, Twitter is Emily K. Schrader, my last name, S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R. Those are the places I'm most active. I'm also on like TikTok and YouTube and Facebook, but I don't use them as much. So for like most of the stuff that I do, the content that I make, it's Twitter and Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then, of course, you can always uh, message me. I'm happy to answer any questions that people have about Israel. I get a lot. Yeah. Nice <laughs> you know, messages, please. Nice messages. Yes. Or me messages. I don't care. <laughs> I will screenshot it and put it on my story. So your name will be out there for everyone. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, keep doing awesome work. Uh, I think you're one of the few that is really... Um, showcasing the truth and doing it in English, which is is very necessary because I've seen a few, but Hebrew, you know, it's just not, most people don't know Hebrew. So it's great that someone like you is out there putting out the truth in English. So, you know, in digestible little videos so people can, uh, can get the truth. So keep doing amazing work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thanks. It was really fun. We should definitely do it again. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Take care, Emily. Bye.